Well, good morning. It's nice, nice to see you. I missed you all last week. I was uh, thankful that Brother Alex um, opened up the Word of God and fed Christ's sheep. Last weekend was a staycation for me. I uh, just needed a break, but I didn't go anywhere. Uh, but I did have the opportunity to visit Calvary Chapel in town, and I was happy to have done that. Um, their pastor, their uh, Levi Woodhouse, is relatively new. I think it's been a couple of years, though, now. And I've been wanting to meet him and uh, encourage him, so that was my opportunity. And uh, my wife has gotten to be friends with his wife, Amanda. Uh, Amanda is the director of the, the local pregnancy care center, and she has lots of energy and, and vision and uh, my Denise has really enjoyed getting to be her friend, so that's what I was doing last, last Sunday. I didn't just sleep in and watch preseason football, I promise. <laughs> but speaking of the Pregnancy Care Center, um, on September 30th, they're holding a fundraising, a fundraiser. It's called A Night for Life. It's a gala, and um, there's flyers, I think, that either are available or will be available on the welcome counter. And I encourage you, if you're able to attend, to, to please attend and remember that um, the Pregnancy Care Center is able to operate because of the generous contributions of, of volunteers. So please, please consider that. All right. Well, we're back in the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 15. Brother Kevin read all of chapter 15 this morning, but we're going to be looking at uh, the last verses, verses 22 through 33, where uh, Paul relates his uh, plans and his prayers. And let me just remind you, that uh, this is the third and final section of Paul's famous letter to the church in Rome. Um, the first section, which takes up chapters 1 through 11 in the book of Romans, is, is doctrinal. It's heavy, heavy doctrine. And um, the main doctrine that's emphasized in those chapters is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And then the second section in the book of Romans begins with chapter 12 and then goes about halfway through chapter 15 through verse 13, as a matter of fact. And that second section in the book of Romans emphasizes practical application. So if chapters 1 through 11 basically says, here's what we're supposed to believe then in this next section, chapters 12 through midway through chapter 15, they emphasize here's how we're supposed to live. And uh, this third and final section, which begins in chapter, I'm sorry, verse 14 of chapter 15, this um, section is very personal from the Apostle Paul. So here he discusses various personal matters with the Christian community in Rome, including, it turns out, his plans to visit them. And we're, and we're going to see that in uh, the first section here that we'll be looking at. So that's, by way of reminder, 
to bring you up to speed. And so let's look at this first part in verses 22 through 29, where Paul relates to us his plans. His plans. Notice verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. And that relates back to what he had already written. So in verses 18 through 21, I'll just read that again. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. He's been busy. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, like in Rome, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. That's the reason, Paul says, why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, because it was committed to spreading the gospel uh, to where Christ had not already been Named where the gospel had not already been heard. That was his priority. We know that that's not all that he ever did because he did circle back and visit various churches that he himself had planted, uh, but this was his priority, and that's why, um, even though he wanted to visit the church in Rome, he had never been able to. He, he had been hindered. So that was... Uh, the, the, an example of a previous plan of Paul's. Next, he relates to us Paul's plan for the near future. So notice verse 23. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for, for a while. So this reminds us of what we saw in chapter 1, that uh, Paul, even though he himself did not plant the church in Rome, he had never been to the church in Rome, yet he, he wanted to. So back in chapter 1, this is a reminder Verses 9 through 15. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may mutually that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And by the way, that's the whole point of Christian fellowship. That's a big reason why we come to church Sunday by Sunday. We, we come into the house of God to worship him in spirit and truth, and that's worth it all by itself. But in addition to that, 
we are all helped through the mutual encouragement of each other's faith. We all need that. We, we, we need one another. And uh, Paul was looking forward to that mutual encouragement in an eventual visit to Rome, which, by the way, he never actually undertook. And then in verse 13 in Romans chapter 1, I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul looked forward to this mutual encouragement, but he also looked forward to being able to preach the gospel to the believers who are in Rome. By the way, believers need to hear the gospel too. The gospel is not just for unbelievers, for them to be saved. The gospel is for believers as well. It encourages us, it gives us hope, and it helps to slay that Pharisee that is hidden in the heart of each, of each one of us. So this was Paul's plan to visit them in Rome. Um, he mentions Spain in verse, verse 24. Let's check out this map. Paul probably wrote the book of Romans, the letter to the church in Rome here at Corinth. Here's Rome. And um, over here is Spain. And he says that he's hoping to go to Spain. And what he would do is stop over in Rome and then go to Spain. But Paul says, as we're going to see, that before he does that, uh, there's this urgent mercy ministry need in Jerusalem. So he's hoping to go from Corinth back down to Jerusalem and then he's hoping to make this journey, stopping off in Rome and then continuing on in Spain. Verse 25 and 26, he says, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So here's Paul over in Corinth. Here's Illyricum. Here's a Zoom. This is from the ESV Study Bible. I, I bought all of their graphics. We, we did. Um, Rome. He is down here at Corinth. He mentions Macedonia. Modern-day Macedonia is actually north of this. This area comprises modern-day Greece. Um, but in Macedonia, there's Berea, Thessalonica, uh, Philippi. You'll recognize those cities, uh, cities where Paul planted churches. Um, but the, these are the area, and here's, here's Achaia, and that's where Corinth was located in Athens, um, so he mentions these regions of where the saints had uh, made contributions. They had agreed to help out with the saints in Jerusalem. And obviously, there is no 
PayPal, there's no Zelle or anything of that nature, not even mailing a check through the U.S. Postal Service. Um, but if somebody was going to get contributions like that, somebody was going to have to hand carry it. And so that is what Paul had signed up to do, and that's what he was determined uh, to carry out. So now in verse 27, for they were pleased to do it, the, the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And indeed, they owe it to them, to the saints in Jerusalem. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So a word about that. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says that Christians should not give out of compulsion. And he also says that God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, and that's why that uh, we as a church and most um, evangelical churches that I'm aware of, there's no guilt, guilting people into giving. There's no manipulation or twisting of arms. It's not supposed to be by compulsion. Uh, and yet, Paul is gently reminding the believers in Rome that they do have a sense of obligation to the saints in Jerusalem. The, the saints in Jerusalem were very poor, by and large. Uh, they truly were members of a marginalized community, marginalized by the Roman Empire, certainly marginalized by the Jewish community, by and large. They, they were not a welcome group, and so it was hard for them to, to make a living and to prosper and to even feed themselves and their, their households. And so they truly were in need of benevolence. And uh, part of this obligation that Paul alludes to here in verse 27 is this reminder to the believers in Rome that they're uh, certainly part of the Roman church was comprised of Jews, but it was largely a Gentile church and that uh, the gospel had come to the Gentile world, like Rome, from Jerusalem. It sprang from Jerusalem. And remember that the gospel is all about the Jewish Savior, Jesus. And so they were not to turn their backs on their poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. That, that's what verse 27 is all about. Then we move on to verses 28 and 29, where Paul wrote, When therefore I have completed this, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. And I went over that hoped itinerary earlier. Let's see, back here. This is what he was hoping to do. From Corinth, Jerusalem, and then back to Spain through Rome. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Uh, but regarding this hoped-for visit to Rome, we read about it in Romans chapter 1. He mentions it again here in Romans 
chapter 15, he lays out this uh, hoped for future itinerary. There's, there's no authoritative evidence that Paul ever made that journey, that he never ended up in Spain. There, there are some mentions of it among some early Christian writers, but we just don't know if Paul ever accomplished his goal. So these are Paul's plans, and there's, there's a lesson for us to take away from this. Remember, the whole point here is Paul uh, sharing some personal matters with the brethren in Rome, e even though he had never met many of them face to face. Some of them he did, and we're going to read about them in chapter 16, but a lot of them he had never met. Still, he loved them in the Lord, and he wanted to, to see them. And the, the lesson here, the, the takeaway from this paragraph, verses 20 through 29, is that uh, it is wise to make godly plans, but it's up to God if our plans work out. But it is wise to make godly plans. There's lots of biblical passages. Proverbs 21 and verse 5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty, meaning they don't make plans, they, they act on a whim. Everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. That's a proverbial truth. It's a wisdom, pearl of wisdom that applies uh, to, to life. It's good and wise to make plans, to not just live moment by moment. We're not supposed to worry. We're not supposed to be anxious for tomorrow but we are supposed to make plans. And uh, that underlies the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 14 and verse 28, where he said, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Counting the cost is a part of making Plans. So it's wise to make godly plans. But of course, we know that that's not the end all be all. That's not the end of the story. Many of us have experience of making plans, wise plans, godly plans, even kingdom oriented plans, and they just don't work out. That's because of what the Bible teaches in passages like. Proverbs 16 and verse 9, a, man, uh, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. It's the purview of our hearts to plan our way, but it's up to God to direct our steps. And let's look together in James chapter 14 James, uh, chapter 4, sorry, James chapter 4. Hopefully right away there was a warning flag that went off. There are not 14 chapters in James. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Come now, James writes, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and 
spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Notice that these are plans that sound really sure and certain. The the person making plans like this is saying, this is what I will do, and this is what will happen. It almost sounds like a prophecy and not just plans. And so James sets the record straight. Verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And isn't that the case? Tomorrow is a long time from now. And there are so many things that could happen to interrupt our plans from a medical emergency, traffic accident, a crime, war, all kinds of things can break into our nice, neat, tidy world and just blow up our plans. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And the idea is, think of how fragile and temporary mist is. Imagine mist making plans like we read in verse 13. Who are you, O mist? James seems to be saying. Instead of being so presumptuous, Verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do do this or that. And notice what's wrong with the statement in verse 13. What's wrong is not making plans. Making plans is good and wise and responsible. But what's wrong is making plans absent from any thought of the providence of God absent any thought of the sovereignty of God, as if we and we alone are the important factor in our plans actually coming to pass. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And so... Anytime we make plans, they're always couched in this this assumption, if the Lord wills. Lord willing, that's where that comes from. Lord willing. And Paul himself spoke that way. In 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 19, he said to the church in Corinth, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. So we should remember that, we should plan that way, we should think that way, and we should talk that way. It's not just a little bumper sticker slogan, Lord willing. There's a lot of theological meat behind that little phrase. If the Lord wills, Lord willing. So a little takeaway there, it's Wise to make godly plans, but it's up to God if our plans work out. All right, well, Paul goes on 
in Romans chapter 15 to share his prayers, verses 30 through 33. Paul's prayers. Verse 30, he writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. And just pause there for a minute. That's a mouthful. And it tells us a lot about biblical praying. Do, do, do you hear that? He's, he's appealing to them that, uh, that he, they would pray for him. But, but notice that our prayers are not just automatic. Our, our prayers are not owed to us. There is a lot that the God of the universe has provided for us so that we could pray. And not just pray for ourselves, but even pray for others. We, we, we pray by our Lord Jesus Christ. He's our redeemer. He's our peace. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He has brought us into uh, a, a loving, united relationship with God. We've been reconciled with God through Christ. Otherwise, we have no right to pray as God's estranged enemies. And that's how the Bible describes us outside of Christ. It's by Jesus Christ and it's by the love of the Spirit. The, the, the Spirit groans within us. He intercedes in our behalf from within us because we know not how to pray. The Holy Spirit works love within us. Love for God, love for his kingdom, love for our fellow uh, men and women, brothers and sisters. Without that, we're selfish. We don't care about things beyond ourselves and our little lives, our little bubbles. But this is what the Holy Spirit does. He, he expands our horizons he gives us vision and passion to pray. And then you'll notice how Paul actually describes this community prayer, the, the Romans praying for him and with him to strive together with me in your prayers to God in my behalf. Praying is a striving for something. It's not just a formula. It's not just rote. It's not just, now I lay me down to sleep. Lord, the, the Lord I pray my soul to keep. It's not just mumbling words that you've memorized with, with no feeling, with no passion, with, with no zeal. But it is striving with God. We looked at James earlier in James chapter 5 and verse 16. James promises us that the effective, fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much. 
And then Paul goes on to mention two specific prayer requests in verse 31. Here's what he is appealing to them to pray with him for. That I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, number one, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, number two. Those are the two specific prayer requests. And it's a reminder that what Paul was going into in Jerusalem was a lion's den. It was not friendly territory for the gospel. There were enemies of the gospel in Paul's day. That's why he suffered so much for preaching the gospel. That's why he eventually died. He was put to death because he was an ambassador for Jesus Christ. There were enemies of the gospel in Paul's day, and there are enemies of the gospel today. The message of the cross has always been and continues to be foolishness to those who are perishing. It continues to be a stumbling block to the unconverted. And it doesn't make any sense, humanly speaking, because the, the message of the Bible is a message that transforms believers into peacemakers, into those who love and serve their fellow man, into good citizens who are supposed to obey the law unless the law itself is out of bounds with respect to God's law. The, the gospel makes us harmless as believers. If you truly follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be the safest, the most peaceful, the most loving, the most productive citizen the world has ever seen besides Jesus. Christians who truly follow the Lord Jesus are great neighbors and fellow citizens. So why is the gospel so hated in Paul's day as well as our, our own? It's because of the message of the cross. The, the cross says that there is an angry God. There's a God who has wrath that is ready to be unleashed because of human sin. The, the cross says that God is not just going to ignore human sin. The, the cross says that it is beyond us to fix ourselves, to save ourselves, to propitiate God by ourselves. The cross says we're helpless. We're completely dependent on the grace and the mercy of God. We're completely dependent on that one who died upon that cross, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man who came to reconcile sinners like me and you 
with God. And the cross says, if that is what God is all about, and if that is what Jesus came to do, then surely there's hope in no one else. There's, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. And Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it's a simple message. It's a message of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave Jesus to, as a gift to the world to die on the cross for our sins. It's a message of love. But because of all of these aspects about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and our utter helplessness before God, people hate it. People resist it. And people will do very evil things to Christians who just want other people to believe in the same message that saved us. That's why Paul asked for their prayers in his behalf, that he would be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. And then the second prayer request there in verse 31, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. He's not trying to say, oh, I might get down there and they're, they're going to reject it. <clears throat> they're going to reject this gift. They're going to say, oh, no, thank you. Get out of here with your gift. That, that's not the idea. But he was, he was hoping that this gift from believers throughout the Gentile regions would be received as a witness, as a testimony of the authenticity of the faith of those Gentiles. It, it, it was supposed to say, we believe in the same Jesus that you do. And because we believe in the same Jesus that you do, we love the same Jesus that we do, we love you. Even though we've never met, and even though humanly speaking, there are racial barriers that would divide us from each other forever. You're Jews and we're Gentiles. And other than Christ, those two groups typically don't mix. And we love Jesus and we love you so much that we've heard of your need and we've given from ourselves because we want you to be blessed. We want you to know that Jesus cares for your every need. Paul asked the believers in Rome to pray for that effect, that it would be received in that way. And so, be successful. But still, Paul was hoping to be able to go on this relief mission to Jerusalem. He, was, uh, he asked them in Rome to pray for its success. 
And he was hoping to enjoy a sense of peace and satisfaction in accomplishing that relief mission to Judea. And so he writes in verse 32, so that, here's the whole purpose of the mission and the prayer, so that by God's will, remember what we saw in James, God willing, Lord willing, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And again, apparently, it was not God's will for Paul to have this desire of his heart. And then this passage, in fact, all of chapter 15 here, ends with a blessing that almost makes it sound like the book of Romans should be done, but it's not. There's chapter 16. But here's this blessing. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So there you go. Paul's plans and Paul's prayers. Paul's prayer. I do have some quick takeaways for you. Just looking back at this passage, three takeaways. The, the first takeaway is just for us to be challenged by the example of Paul's vision and determination. Paul had vision. Paul thought big, and he planned big. Humanly speaking, if it wasn't for the Apostle Paul, we're not here today, worshiping the God of the Bible. Paul was, humanly speaking, again, responsible for about half of the New Testament and spreading the gospel around the uh, the, the known world at the time, the, the Roman world. And he was planning on doing more and extending the boundaries of God's kingdom. Wanted to do more, but it seems as if God cut those plans short. And like, like the Apostle Paul, <clears throat> not in a worldly sense, but in a kingdom of God sense, we just sang, let your kingdom come. Really, brothers and sisters, sometimes we need to be challenged to think big. Think outside of the box. Think beyond our comfort zone. Even think beyond our safety and be innovative and entrepreneurial and risk-taking in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ so that people can hear the gospel and be saved and Jesus might be glorified. What an example Paul set for us. But the second takeaway is this um, reality that gospel ministry includes benevolence. It includes caring for the poor. Jesus commanded us to remember the poor. We'll always have the poor among us, Jesus said. And uh, the Apostles and the other members of the Jerusalem council uh, wanted to make sure that Paul and whoever would be with him, Silas, Barnabas, and others, would always remember the poor. And, and we need to remember that. So here's my personal observation. Theologic, theological conservatism, and, and, and that's what we are, 
A theological conservative is sim simply someone who believes in the authority and the inerrancy, the infallibility of the Bible. A theological conservative believes this is the word of God, and so whatever it says, I'm going to believe it. Even if I don't comprehend it, I'm going to believe it. That's a theological conservative. Well, theological conservatism, in my experience, tends to breed, especially in our day and age, political conservatism. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing, but don't be deceived. Political conservatism is not biblical Christianity. And sometimes, in some quarters of political conservatism, there is this attitude that looks at poor people and says, well, they must have done it to themselves. Why should I bother helping out the poor? And I just want you to know that sometimes that's true. Um, there's a lot of homeless people who are on the streets because of things that they did, particularly when it, when it comes to, to drugs, sure. But we have to beware of that spirit in our hearts that judges the poor, condemns the poor, and doesn't have compassion for the poor. That is not a Christian spirit. And all we have to do is look at the example of the Apostle Paul. He almost single-handedly turned the world upside down with his preaching of the gospel. But his ministry consisted of more than preaching the gospel. When there were legitimate needs, he was ready to give. And he was ready to ask other Christians to give. Because we shouldn't be like the person that James talks about. When someone comes to your door, they're hungry, they need, they're needy, and you say, ah, be on your way, I'll, I'll pray for you. Be warm and filled. Christians should preach the gospel and then demonstrate in a material way the love of Christ by seeking to relieve urgent needs. That's what the Bible teaches. And if somebody did it to themselves, then that's on them. We still have to have, have a heart to help in Jesus' name. So here's a good lesson. Benevolence without the gospel is powerless to save. But the gospel without benevolence is like a clanging symbol. And God wants us to remember both. So that's the second takeaway. The third one, third takeaway is that Jesus is the redeemer of both body and soul. Jesus cares about our souls. That's why he absorbed the wrath of God in our place. But Jesus also cares about our bodies. And ultimately, he has come to redeem both body and soul. 
Remember in, in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 23, Paul talks about the, the, the redemption of all of creation and the redemption of our bodies when Jesus comes again. And I'm reminded of the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism, which asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ.